analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. We've got a lot to talk about in the show or on the show this morning. Uh, we're going to touch base with the province's newest Builders Code advisor to talk about changing the culture in the construction industry as more women flood into that particular sector. We'll also hear from uh, the uh, uh, Gina Myhill jones who's going to seek the uh, federal NDP nomination in the Kamloops-Thompson-Caribou ahead of... Uh, ahead of this fall's federal election, get a sense of what she's about, and we'll hear as we do every Tuesday from TRU lecturer and lawyer Jeffrey Myers and all things politics. But first, we haven't had a chance to talk to Kathleen Carpuck, school board chair, in a long time. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been, I was think, trying to think the last time you were in studio. It's been a few weeks now. It's been almost a month. <laughs> there we go. Uh, so, uh, hey, a lot of exciting things yesterday. Uh, number one, the budget uh, hit the table. Tell me a little bit about this. I know that uh, in the past... Um, years, the budget's been a case of, you know, oh my God, over here, I'm going to have to do a little bit over there. Uh, it's been a little patchwork. Okay, we finally got this thing tabled. It sounds like it's more good news and a lot less struggle this year. What's, what's happening on that front? So this is the first year in ages where our budget hasn't been focused on cuts. So we've actually had, um, with the increase in student numbers, able to actually invest a little bit more money into the school system. Yeah. So we're hiring a new school and family consultant. That's basically one of our district uh, counselors. <coughs> so focusing more on student mental health, uh, hiring a part-time uh, healthy relationships coordinator that came out of the superintendent's task force on student safety, uh, hiring a, another manager to support our custodians, uh, right now, our evening custodians don't have anyone to call, and they're very often there until 11 at night. So oh, okay. in case of an emergency, they now have someone to call if an issue comes up. Um, putting some more money into numeracy, some more release time and money for professional development around numeracy. So those are just some of the things that we're looking at. I assume there's going to be some more teachers hired and that kind of thing too, and support staff, or how's that working out? Teachers, we always hire more teachers when we have an increase in students. So yeah. that just kind of comes with the student numbers. So having a projected increase, we will be hiring some more teachers, yes. Well, talk to me a little bit about the mental health side, because I know that uh, that was one of the uh, mental health and healthy relationships was one of the goals of this new budget. So, And it's an area that uh, perhaps has been... Um, I don't know what the word is, underexplored, not enough attention paid to it maybe in the past, and, and it's an issue I think not just in the school system but in society in general uh, where we're getting sort of more of a spotlight. But tell me a little bit about how the district is tackling that and why that's so important. It's important because we've had uh, numerous different groups tell us that they have increasing concerns around student mental health. Mm. Students themselves. Uh, when we survey our students in the uh, Tell It To Me or Tell It From Me survey that we have, they're reporting increasing levels of anxiety, um, stress, and so there's definitely concern with students. We're having more incidences of um, drug and alcohol addiction. Um, we're concerned with vaping is also something that's leading to higher levels of addiction, and with that um, comes some more mental health stressors. Uh, we know the teachers have been asking us to add in a counselor for a while. Um, we finally have the money to do it. It was one of our very first priorities when we had some extra money was to say, let's get another counselor. Tell me a little bit about the vaping problem, because I know uh, our local MLA, Todd Stone, who has got uh, three daughters in the school system, is, it's something that he as a parent is super worried about. There's apparently some kind of an explosion in vaping use out there. Uh, what's the district seeing? I know vaping is not allowed on school property, and yet these devices um, not easily catchable. They're, they're fairly small, that kind of thing. Are you guys seeing a big problem developing in the school district or no? We do see um, a lot more incidences of vaping. Um, again, we do um, have a ban on it. Um, yeah. It's challenging to um, try and enforce that ban. The devices are, as you said, very hard to detect. Um, our concern is that there's chemicals in that substance that aren't healthy. Um, it's difficult to know when they're laced with nicotine, which does lead to addiction. Mm. They're being specifically marketed to teens with uh, bubblegum flavoring and that type of thing. So definitely a concern that um, they're being marketed as a healthy alternative to cigarettes, and we really aren't sure that that's the case. 
Yeah, I don't think it is. Uh, you touched on it a little bit there, and I want to sort of put the focus on it. The superintendent's report on safety, which came out of um, some allegations around some uh, some sexual misconduct in the district raised by a parent, I believe it was about a year or so ago. Uh, that led to, uh, okay, we're going to step back, we're going to look at this issue. A task force was struck. Um, tell me a little bit about this report and what it means for the district uh, now that you guys have taken a look at this particular issue. So the task force was struck last year. They reported out at the end of June last year with some recommendations. Following that, we uh, put together a working group um, that had parents and students and staff and members of their community on it. They went through the recommendations that the task force had made and actually went to work developing policy and procedure in and around how we handle these issues. Um, what we've since discovered is that we're on the leading edge of this. Mm. Um, it's unfortunate that, we've, that we are on the leading edge, but we're now working with the province and the Ombudsman's office on the work that we're doing um, because it's so comprehensive so that it can be shared out and made as a resource for other districts. What, what are the changes physically within the school district? I mean, it was that the district was, operated a certain way. We had these allegations. So what's new out of the report? What is the tangible difference out there? So the biggest um, difference is going to be that we now have a consistent method for dealing when someone comes forward so that when our when our admin staff when someone comes forward to a principal and says this is what's happened the principal now has a very uh, comprehensive set of guidelines on what the next steps are how to handle it uh, what demeanor they should be having who they need to be focusing on supporting and uh, so it's quite uh, comprehensive now I, I know what the answer is but I have to ask um, it came out of, I believe, a student faced uh, allegations that, uh, that there was some sexual harassment. It was raised by a parent, wasn't terribly happy with the way the school or the teacher involved in that particular circumstance handled it, uh, became uh, a big deal. Was there was the allegations found to be factual? Was there any punishment to a teacher or no? I can't comment on that. It uh, gets into Privacy Act. Okay. So no, you just can't touch on that. All right. Like I said, I knew the answer, but uh, wanted to make sure our listeners knew that I was asking the question. So um, let's talk about some other stuff. Uh, immunization program. I know there's an in-school immunization thing right now. Next uh, September, we're going to have this thing that's new. Uh, students going to the district are going to have to say, here is my vaccination records so that you guys out there, all the teachers, all the staff, everyone in all the schools will be able to say, okay, uh, all these students are covered, but there's these couple of students, hopefully not a large number, that need some attention and then uh, maybe it's a matter of maybe something was missed and get the parents caught up or maybe there's a segment out there that are unfortunately part of this uh, this anti-vaxxers movement and they can perhaps be educated into seeing sort of the ignorance of their ways but uh, you had some concerns initially about okay we're going to do this what does it mean manpower staffing wise and then of course that equates to some kind of funding I mean it's May now September is a few months away but we're closer now uh, any sense of how that's going to work and whether your concerns are, are have been alleviated or no I still haven't heard anything further on that at this point really nothing at all uh, it hasn't been brought to the board's attention. We haven't received any letters from the minister on it. Okay. Are you anticipating it's going to be a bit of a, a shift like in, in sort of how it's received among parents or no? I'm really not sure how it's going to go. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. Uh, Valley View announcement, obviously very exciting. I know you guys uh, worked really hard for that. Uh, I remember at the announcement, you got a little emotional on the stage, so we all knew what it meant to you. Uh, awesome stuff. So um, now that the announcement's been made, how are we doing on next steps and kind of deciding, okay, this is going to happen at this time and this is going to happen at this time. How's it shaping up now to get the actual work done? Uh, so we had the request for proposals for an architect out the door that afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> we, we were trying to move fast on that. Um, that actually closes tomorrow. Okay. And so we should be finding out uh, within the next month who the architect is. Yeah. And then we'll be going forward from that. What does that mean sort of as far as a timeline? Fingers crossed, we may be breaking ground on some construction this fall. Wow. Okay. Wow. Moving fast. But you guys were well prepared before this announcement. You've been working on this thing for a while. Uh, the other part of that component is, okay, big check mark beside Valley View. 
that in and of itself, you and I both know, does not solve this district's needs. You have a long list of things that you would like to see. So as far as the process and deciding, okay, we're going to move this project up the line to become the new priority project and begin the process fresh with this new project in mind, uh, tell me a little bit about where we are there and, and in deciding what that project is. So we're going through a process right now where we're um, meeting with the municipality of Sun Peaks uh, this Friday. Yep. We're going to be talking to them about growth projections, uh, where they see a possible location of a brick-and-mortar school, uh, where that fits within their community plan, um, see uh, concerns, talk to, you know, is it going to be K-7, K-12, um, basically an information sharing process on Friday. Yeah. Uh, then we have the... Um, City of Kamloops is going to be making a presentation to the board later in May on this city's um, official community plan. Again, uh, where do we see growth happening? Where do we see developments building out in the next few years? So that we have a better idea of where our population pressures are going to be throughout the district. Yeah. And then that will drive um, our ranking for our long-range facilities plan. Which just sounds like should happen, what, <coughs> late summer, fall-ish area? Or? We'll be submitting that in June. June. Okay, done. Kathleen, always a pleasure. Let's Thank make you. sure there's not another month between having you in studio. <laughs> 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 Kathleen Carpuck, chair of the Camloops Thompson School Board. We're going to take a quick break on the Woodford Show. Uh, and then on the other side, we're going to talk about changing the culture of the construction industry as more women go into that sector. Uh, more next. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to uh, welcome to the program this morning this province's newest Builders Code Advisor, Diane Jolicoeur. Diane, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thank you. How are you? I am well as well. Uh, thanks for coming on and taking a few minutes. Really appreciate it. Because this is a pretty important topic uh, for people who don't know. Uh, you're going to be in charge of going around and uh, helping out to uh, sort of change culture uh, in the construction sector. A lot more women going into the trades, which is great. Uh, but that apparently has raised some issues out there uh, as far as, uh, as uh, some of the behaviors, shall we say. So I guess first off, quantify the problem for me. Uh, what is going on out there that requires... Uh, you to step in and, and try and change this culture. Absolutely. Well, what we've noticed and, and uh, in the industry is uh, that a few things. First of all, uh, worker retention in general, although women and youth are entering the construction trades, uh, the retention rate is still quite low. So for the first year, uh, retention rate for women is only at about 50% as opposed to 70% for men. And really, in the trades industry uh, today, women only make up for about 4.7% of the construction industry. So it's uh, quite a small representation, and we'd like to see that increase. And in order for that to happen, there also needs to be, uh, you know, part of the what the Builders Code is about is implementing a standard code of behavioral conduct for all workers on the construction site to make it a safe and productive environment. Yeah, I noted here in, in some of my research materials about what you're about to do, you mentioned retention of tradeswomen. Uh, in order to do that, you're looking to eliminate hazing, harassment, and bullying on BC work sites. Are you seeing a lot of complaints from women going into the trades that they're facing this kind of behavior? Is it a, is it a big problem? Is it, is it a smaller problem? Give me an idea of what, this, what the situation on the ground is. It is a problem, and uh, although there have been some changes, and there are, are definitely companies receptive to that change and companies operating in that change, there's still, there's still more room for work to be done, and there's still there's a lot of small, medium-sized construction companies out there that don't have that HR support or those HR standards in place to really understand kind of the differentiation between having, you know, proper standard code of conduct and um, and just kind of letting things be as they are. So we want to make sure that that's addressed and um, and reinforced in the industry. Yeah, how do you go about doing that? I mean, uh, it is, as I mentioned, it's great to see women going into the trades, fantastic. Uh, but as we know, construction sites uh, have long been very male-dominated and can be very um, sort of rough and tough male places. Uh, how do you go in and change this sort of long-standing culture? What are the steps you take there? 
Well, the steps that we take is having initially having those conversations with the, with the employers in the industry. I rep, I am the employer advisor for the Southern Interior Region, and uh, building those relationships. And then also, uh, what the Builders Code does is provide the employers with tools, uh, with training, and with resources like people such as myself to help guide them through this process. And uh, yeah, so be it's basically you know there's personal protective equipment, there's safety standards uh, in the industry, but we want to take that to include behavioral safety. And so we do provide uh, training tools and uh, policy resources and, uh, like I said, uh, direct contact to advisors in order to support and guide them in this process. I know that we've talked for years about sort of a, a trade shortage uh, here in BC. I don't know where we're at, but... Um, how how much of that can be addressed if we can create environments in the construction sector where uh, women can go into in numbers where they feel safe where they feel welcomed uh, where they can do their job on an equal platform with their male counterparts uh, how how much uh, if we can make that environment happen and, and create an attraction for for women to go into the trades how much would that go into sort of addressing some of that some of that trade shortage out there I think it would go a long way to address it. Um, it, it. You know, as I was saying earlier, just regarding the retention, I think when, you know, people go to work, it, it makes a big difference when you feel safe, when you feel respected and valued for your contribution. Um, so even in making up for that retention loss would be uh, a big difference in and of itself, as well as inviting and welcoming women to to see these changes taking place in the industry makes it a more welcoming um, career path for them. When you go out there and you work with employers and you step into work sites and say, okay, here I am, uh, we have some issues we need to work through, is there a sense uh, of... of um, okay, great, you're here, uh, we, can, we can address these issues, or is there pushback and sort of an unwillingness to, or does it just sort of vary on, on site to site? Uh, well, I'm, uh, I'm just kind of started with this role, so I'm... <laughs> <laughs> you haven't experienced that. As you yet. know. Yeah, yeah okay. Well, but maybe really, I'll ask you, are you, in, are you expecting that? I mean, as you look forward to your role and you go out there, are you, are you sort of anticipating there could be some situations where um, employers might not be so welcoming as opposed to others that might be like, okay, great, yeah, it's time for change? Absolutely. I, I really, you know, I have no expectation of any set sort of responses, but I think the main thing is to just have that conversation to really begin to communicate the value of a builder's code and the standard code of, of behavioral conduct and how that benefits productivity and how, to, how that benefits overall morale, uh, overall safety. I think those are the things that really need to be communicated in order for that message to, to really you know, hit home and really make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, last question before we let you go, Diane. I understand you're going to be in our fair city tomorrow. Uh, where are you and where can people catch you? I'm sorry. Where? Oh, I am here today, actually. Oh, you're we here today. My apologies. Yes. No. Um, we had a breakfast this morning and uh, uh, sponsored by the Southern Interior Construction Association and in honor of Construction Month. And so uh, it was great to meet some of the industry partners here in Kamloops and be, you know, just some of the local contractors, et cetera. So it, it's great being here. Awesome. Diane, thank you again uh, so much for taking a few minutes to talk about this really important issue. And uh, best of uh, luck out there in, uh, in facilitating a much-needed change. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. There we go. That's right. Diane uh, Jolliker, who is the uh, this province's newest Builders Code advisor, as you heard. Uh, part of her responsibility is to go into the construction sector and make it more welcoming for women who are going into the trades who may be facing hazing and harassment and, and bullying as they do that. Hopefully that kind of behavior becomes uh, very, very rare, if at all, in the future. Uh, thank you. We'll take a quick break here on the Whitford Show. On the other side, we were going to meet the person who is seeking the nomination for the federal NDP candidacy here in the Kamloops Thompson ahead of this fall's federal election. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. 
Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. Well, the federal election race is starting to inch closer and closer. And here in the Kamloops Thompson Caribou riding, the election battle is beginning to take form. We know the incumbent, Kathy McLeod, is looking for re-election. We also know that Terry Lake, former mayor, former MLA, uh, is seeking the Liberal nomination. And now we have an NDP nominee, or a challenger anyway, looking for the NDP nomination, Gina Myhill-Jones, who joins us this morning. I guess first and foremost, uh, you're, you're seeking the NDP nomination federally here for this fall's uh, federal election. We know that uh, for the Liberal Party, uh, Terry Lake also seeking the nomination there, and we have the incumbent, Kathy McLeod. So uh, for people who don't know you, perhaps uh, off the top, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? A little bit about myself. Let's see. Um, I hail from the 100-mile house area in the riding. Uh, I've been there for about 10 years now. I'm fairly well involved with the community there. Um, it's come down to the point where volunteering is probably not the best way to serve the community. I feel getting in there and seeking this nomination will give me the opportunity to do an awful lot more real work for getting things accomplished. When you say real work, uh, what do you mean? Like, what is it that you're not able to do now? I look at your resume and I see a lot of uh, volunteerism and a lot of community work, a lot of societal work. Uh, what is it that you can't do now that said that spoke to you and said, hey, listen, uh, I need to take this step? I would really like to see some, some genuine action addressing issues that affect everybody across the entire riding, like housing, making housing affordable, making it available. Pharmacare. Pharmacare is a big issue for me. Um, a lot of the people that I'm used to seeing day-to-day -day in my community need that help. Um, if you have full coverage, you wouldn't even notice, but a lot of people don't, and it's something that's a, a very important issue for me. Uh, resource utilization. We have uh, resource-based communities all through this riding, and we need to make sure that those resources are being utilized in a way that benefits the community they come from. Uh, occurs to me that, I mean, we see Camelos uh, is probably the largest urban center in a very large Camelos Thompson Caribou riding. Um, Terry Lake is from here. Kathy McLeod is from here. Uh, we don't have a green uh, nominee or nomination race yet. We'll see what happens there. Uh, traditionally, the candidates do seem to come from this part of the riding. Uh, you come from the more of the caribou riding. Do, do you think that uh, that provides a, di a distinction, uh, an important separation from yourself and the other candidates, or no? I don't think so. Um, if you look at most of the communities within the riding, there there is a connection that's there. Um, we may be in Hundred Mile House more more immediately connected to the ranching and the forestry, but really, it's a small enough area. It, it's actually about the same commute for to come from 100 miles to Kamloops as it used to be when I lived in Surrey and worked in Abbotsford way back when. Commute-wise, it's about the same. It, it's a little longer, but it takes about the same amount of time. Uh, any idea right now, Gina, if you're, if you're the only person in the race, have you heard of anybody else who's going to try and seek the nomination? Any idea how that's shaping up right now? I don't know exactly, and... and I'm really hoping that we do have a lot of input from a lot of members. The federal NDP has always been a huge presence in this riding, and I'm sure I'll be hearing from a lot of people this morning. Are you anticipating you're going to have some competition or no? You know, at this point, this time this morning, having just made my announcement, I'm not sure. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, the incumbent Kathy McLeod is going for a fourth term, so she's had uh, she's had some years. Uh, she's a well-known name in the riding. She's getting a lot of limelight because she's been the MP. Terry Lake, uh, former mayor, former MLA, he's very high profile, very well known. Uh, how do you feel about you know going mm -hmm. up against people like that as, as sort of a political novice? Let me just say, as long as I've been in the riding, Kathy McLeod has been my MP. So we'll just leave that at that. Terry Lake came to my attention a few years ago when he was um, provincially involved in trying to set up private surgical care. So we'll leave that for now. So I'm not quite sure if you're asking, do I 
I guess what I'm asking is that both of them have a lot of name recognition. People know who they are, which uh, helps them when they seek uh, political office. Uh, people, you know, uh, you're you're new to the scene. People may not have the same association, the same recognition of who you are. So, how do you tackle that? Basically, with what I'm doing right now, make myself available, answer questions, try and get out and meet as many people as I can, and try and get my ideals and my goals as as public as possible. Sometimes, unfortunately, federal politics, any politics these days, because there's such polarization, we're seeing such, uh, frankly, gross extreme behavior all over the place, uh, and some political discourse is really hitting the basement, unfortunately. Um, stepping into the public spotlight can often be a thankless job, and you face uh, uh, some good things, but there you, you're also going to face some bad things. People are going to take hot shots at you, and, and you're going to live your life in the public eye. Uh, how cognizant are you of, of both the good and, and the bad as you take this step, and, and how are you going to sort of tackle that? I've actually had a fairly large social media presence all along. I've seen firsthand how good people can be in that forum and how not. <laughs> I think I have a fairly thick skin, and I know I'm prepared. The NDP, of you mentioned, have been historically very strong in this riding. Matter of fact, they've held it for a number of years until the Conservatives held it for the last bunch of years. Uh, it's typically been an NDP conservative tug of war back and forth. Uh, how do you sort of see this? Do you see a, do you see a, a very tight race shaping? What's going to happen down the road here? I think any time you have a contender you have an entry in the race. So whether it goes two ways or three ways, it currently would be three. Um, when it comes down to who I think actually has the voice to speak to the average citizen in the riding. You know, you're on the air with me, and we're going to be putting this uh, interview out probably in full so people get a sense of who you are as you go down this nomination race. So I guess my last question to you, with this chance to speak directly to whomever is listening, uh, what's your message to voters out there? My message to the voters out there is that I believe entirely that it is time that people have representation. And I mean that they have representation, a person they can go talk to, a person they can ask questions of. They, they need someone that is going to be looking out for issues that affect them day to day. I think people need to know that any information coming to them is going to be honest, it's coming with integrity, and it's going to be to their benefit. Gina, it's a pleasure. Thank you for taking a few minutes of your morning to, to chat with me, and uh, uh, I look forward to chatting with you as this election race uh, forms up and then we get on with the campaign. Well, I'm sure we'll talk soon. And that was Gina Myhill-Jones, who's seeking the NDP nomination in the Kamloops-Thompson-Caribou in this fall's federal election. We'll take a quick break on the Woodford Show on the other side. We'll be joined as we are every Tuesday by Jeffrey Myers. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. As we do every Tuesday, a real pleasure to welcome to the program lawyer and lecturer up at TRU, Jeffrey Myers. Good morning, Jeff. How are you? Oh, good morning, Shane. Good to be on with you as always. Yeah, good to have you on. Uh, so we got a long list of things to talk about. Uh, one of the big ones off the top, uh, Jeff, as you know, uh, in American politics, I mean, there's lots going on there at any given time. I did want to get a sense from you uh, on the issue of this sort of showdown uh, between the president and uh, Congress on his taxes. Um, what the legal line here is, because Republicans are taking the stance that, uh, you know, he doesn't legally have to cough them up. Democrats figure they're on good legal ground. He's the only president in modern history who hasn't, uh, and they're going to try and get their hands on these things, but it's going to be a full-on stonewall around the president. Uh, so uh, who's who has the legal right here? Well, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that the law as it currently stands doesn't oblige or require the president or people running for uh, the presidency to disclose their tax returns. However, a strong convention 
had been established whereby, you know, um, I'm not sure if every candidate, uh, you know, um, in the history of uh, the United States or in the history of the the tax return in the in the in the way we imagine it now, um, but in the last in the, in the last several or certainly uh, last several modern elections are within memory have all been you know producing their tax returns and I mean of course also transparently divesting themselves of any interests uh, which might present a conflict of interest either real or apparent and by the way none of those interests have ever matched in terms of the sort of size of the wealth and the business interests. Uh, Mr. Trump's. So he's not divested himself of his businesses. As you know, he's, he, they don't, he doesn't even have them really in a blind trust. They're being operated by his son. And he's never produced any of his tax returns. And it's always been believed um, that the tax returns uh, are valuable in the sense that they will give a better picture of what uh, Mr. Trump's business enterprise looks like and really, um, you know, give a clearer picture of whether or not and to what extent Mr. Trump has paid his burden of the taxes that uh, are, are, are owing to the government. Now, um, you know, were we to see those tax returns, it would take us, they would probably land with the same kind of fizzle in a way that the Mueller report does. It takes time to look through them and to make inferences and various possible inferences are, are there. And after so long, I think the public attention is already onward, is, on, is, is forward. But the murk of the financial um, arrangements that uh, Mr. Trump had in the in the Trump business, uh, and also the potential for that to elucidate further any connections with, um, you know, Russia or its interests, particularly the the Trump Tower there. there, That's why there's a residual effort. To my mind, this is something we can move on from, but it's very important that laws be put in place that from from henceforth onward, any president must... um, uh, submit their tax returns as a part of their um, uh, in order to run, right? So that the going forward, we can have this. So we just require uh, the president to produce his tax returns in 2020 in due course with all the other candidates. Now, of course, that would require Congress to agree to do that, and the Senate is still controlled by the Republicans, so it's unlikely to happen. But that's probably. It makes sense in a way more than just going after Mr. Trump's returns. I'll, I'll note that he's being protected by the Department of the Treasury. I mean, it's a very corrupt government. And these subpoena fights, now that the um, White House has said that it intends to dig in, it's not just on the question of tax returns, but across the board on a lot of other things, particularly arising from the Mueller report, that they're going to fight the subpoenas, right? So those subpoenas are going to go through the court system and they're going to find themselves eventually litigated all the way to um, Supreme Court. And, you know, by the time all this litigation wins its way through the system, um, you know, the, the the game will be significantly changed. So there's a kind of strategy here of kind of slow rolling this whole thing. I think we've seen that with how Mueller rolled out the report as well. We can see what the strategy is. In some ways, Jeff, I mean, this is a kind of a deep question, uh, and you floated it in sort of our prep here a little bit, but uh, I think that this president, in a lot of ways, is, is testing the boundaries and the presence of the Constitution, uh, has how the Founding Fathers put this whole thing together, which at the time back then was to prevent sort of, you know, having this all-powerful monarch, a la the British mm-hmm. king, that they mm-hmm. left behind uh, in this new country. Uh, we have a president who seems either completely unaware, oblivious, or choosing to deliberately ignore uh, these constraints that are supposed to kind of keep him in check. Uh, how do you see this whole thing? Well, I mean, I think that's true. I mean, I think what I perceive the present era as being a kind of cognitive dissonance, because I think we're in a situation now where the very forms of corruption which the framers of the U.S. Constitution imagined in the... um, you know, the, the late 1700s when they drafted it are, and in the context of America's break, revolutionary break with England and, and altogether with the attempt to create a kind of new form of republic free from the corruption that they perceived and what that, that existed in Europe, um, that it was imagined that the concern of the framers, exactly as you allude to, was that the president of the United States should start to behave like a monarch and that they should start to behave in a way that was sort of outside of the constraint or the control of the people or of other democratic institutions. And so the genius of their design and the tripwire that was set into it was that the president was sort of constrained on one side to some extent by the courts, but more by Congress, right? Um, And so now we've seen in the last 30, 40, 50 years, depending on how you look at it, a kind of consolidation of power in the presidency and in the executive, something that the Congress has permitted to happen in many ways as a practical kind of nod to 
running foreign policy and monetary policy to some extent as well. And now that they've ceded a lot of that territory in terms of practical oversight, and we've had now a decisive number also of conservative judges who've suggested that the executive is sort of first among equals among the three branches. We're now reaching a crisis, um, and we've reached a point when it's exactly the kind of situation that the the Founding Fathers, I think, would have foreseen, obviously in a different context. But we can't accept it for what it is or really acknowledge it for being that because we're we're almost afraid that we've we lack the ability to look at the matter objectively anymore or that you know any of the old rules still apply and mr trump is very deftly manipulating um these situations and certain lawyers uh who work uh for the trump administration and work with mr trump are trying to navigate it themselves and some like don mcgann you know who you saw coming out as a, is going to be the star witness coming out of the Mueller report you know, really refuse to be utilized as a tool to sort of break the law. Um, and other um, officials, and you know, Mueller, and, I'm sorry, uh, Bob Barr is increasingly looking like he's one of those officials, is sort of willing to, you know, push the outer envelope of, you know, the line between legal control of the executive. So it's, it does, and this is not just happening in the United States, as you and I talked about beforehand, there's a similar tendency towards um, concentration of power in the executive. Indeed, the recent scandal around SNC-Lavalin and the role of the Attorney General in Canada vis-a-vis -vis the Trudeau government revolves in part around the sort of over-robust, uncontrolled arrogance that surrounds the Prime Minister's office and has for some time in recent Canadian history, which starts to cause it to push back on the idea of oversight or hard lines around, um, you know, the rule of law. So, and makes the problem of the attorney general being the chief law enforcement officer at the same time as a political minister a problem here in the same way as it became a problem with Jeff Sessions in the United States and became, in a completely different context, uh, a problem now with Bob Barr in the United States. We see these cross-cutting kind of structural problems which are hints at bigger issues. And those are the things that interest me as an academic and as an intellectual, because I think, though, to my mind, there's something there which we're not adequately cognizant of, which I think when we look back on our period in history, we might be more so. But I want us to be alive to those issues because I think they present a real threat to a lot of the values that we took for granted, as well as a lot of the safeguards that we thought would be there and that we thought we could rely on. I think, you know, it's it's every generation has to kind of renew the political order and the kind of social contract. And if they don't do that, uh, the result is that there's a kind of um, there's a kind of um, rot that sets in. And again, the founding fathers or the framers of the U.S. Constitution were very aware of that because they looked at one hand to the tyrannical rule of George the first in England. And then they looked uh, and they didn't want to reproduce that. But they also they looked at they they thought about the ancient model of Rome and how it reached like the dizzying heights of success only to fall deeper into corruption than ever before so they were always kind of aware of this possibility and you know the fact is if you look at the evidence i think and if you just look at the the data that we have available to us the magnitude of wrongs which have been sort of committed and i don't speak necessarily of legal wrongs on a criminal scale but even just of political wrongs which are readily recognizable also as moral and ethical wrongs that this presidency is far and above anything that's ever caused an impeachment before whether it was the andrew johnson trial a century and a half ago or the Clinton trial uh, with this in recollection for your middle-aged listeners and your older listeners like ourselves. Um, you know, the magnitude of wrongdoing is of a different scale, but we cannot accept that uh, Democrats are hesitating in playing politics with it. And, and maybe there are reasons to do so, but that, that the fact that that's happening should give us collectively, I think, reason to pause. So I thank you for asking me about that because I, it's something I often want to convey to the public and I don't have an opportunity to do so. Yeah, and to take that a step further, actually, I think, and, and I don't know if you'll agree or disagree or not, but uh, I'm growing increasingly alarmed by the extremism in politics that is then enforcing, guiding, empowering um, some extremist behavior out there and, and to some degree sort of a, a reevaluation, a redefinition, a takeover even of what we would consider conservatism. And it's not only happening on the right, I mean, it's happening on the left as well. But uh, what was sort of a clash of ideologies done on the battleground with mutual respect is now a bygone era. And we're seeing behaviors today that are just, I think, um, outright destructive to democracy.
Yeah, I mean, that's a very complicated, in the statement that you just made, there's an awful, there's a lot of moving pieces in the statement that you just made, Shane. So, I mean, if you wanted to, we could probably spend an hour teasing them apart, which we unfortunately don't have. But, I mean, the, the only thing I would really say is I think there's always this, this, this one trope that you have in there that I think is, I've, has been one I've been thinking about a lot lately. And that is, you know, you know, is this is this a, is there a kind of the, it's the both sides ism question, right? Is it is it that we've fallen from some earlier period of civil debate and we now don't have civil debate, and we used to have civil debate in some halcyon era and we've just lost civility, and that's a function of kind of bad manners and ill will and bad faith and sort of just contemptible behavior on both sides of the kind of quote unquote extreme political spectrum. I'm not sure that that diagnosis it really gets at the core of, of what's going on. I think that there's always been a civilized debate that has a sort of decorum, which, you know, exists among the chattering classes, but there's also always been, especially, you know, <clears throat> for people who are more vulnerable and awfully different kind of um, debate that expresses itself in their lives in different ways. And in the current political environment, I think that I worry about the both sidesism because while there is what you might call extremism on all sides of the political spectrum, and there always is, in the current epoch, the violence and killing is massively disproportionate on one side of the political spectrum. The other side of the spectrum, you know, deigns to suggest things like a universal income, while the other one is shooting up places of worship willy-nilly all over the world. So I do think there has to be a very careful effort to, um, and I think that the right, the far right, that is, is maximizing on, you know, the using that to leverage, you know, more tension. Um, and I also think, again, you know, sometimes we talk about the Overton window, right, being the kind of window of what's permissible in polite conversation or in polite politics. It's opened in a variety of ways. In, 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 on the left, it's open to permit us to think about things like the Green New Deal, on the right, it's opened up to think uh, to allow us to think about questions of immigration through a prism of security and um, you know race. Um, so it's 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 alarming and it's frightening. Um, it's neither a good nor a bad thing, um, but the way in which this has kind of expressed itself, I think, in the politics of fear and division, um, and has been sort of reiterated along anti-democratic kind of lines, yeah, I think it's obliterated the old right-wing politics of the sort of gentleman, and uh, you know, I think it's made left-leaning folks uh, reevaluate whether they want to be centrist, because they don't really feel that they're getting anywhere in the current environment. So it's, it's complicated, but I don't think it's just about civility, although it is also about civility, and I don't want to downplay or in any way take off the table the effect of things like the internet or social media and sort of how we talk to one another, and I don't want to say that that's not important. Because it is. So I think what you're saying, it just like I say, it has a lot in it. We could probably talk forever about it. Absolutely. Uh, a couple more quick issues to just throw at you here, Jeff. Uh, one of them is uh, with the presidential race kind of starting to take shape. Uh, it's interesting to hear how much of the, the word impeachment is playing a role in the Democrat side of things. Uh, how, do you, how do you see these candidates as a jockey for position navigate around this particular issue? Well, I mean, we're so, first let's say that we're so early in this, right? So I think that the, any conclusions anybody's drawing about sort of what's going to happen, you've got this field of 20 people, there's a perception, you know, Biden's officially in now, he's sort of hazily the front runner. It's very hard to game out at this early stage. You know, we don't have any contests coming up yet. It's just a question of who's fundraising. It changes every week. So I think we do have to to recognize that. But I think what's happening in the Democratic Party more broadly and is going to play itself out around these candidates. And some of the candidates I really have a lot of admiration for, like people like Elizabeth Warren, as I said before, I think, you know, she's a quite remarkable person and a really innovative policy machine, you know. So if you're going to elect somebody to be a president of the United States that was sort of genetically engineered for perfection, it would be Elizabeth Warren. But unfortunately, there are other things that people consider in these things. But anyway, you know, she's come out right away, I think, and I was very, ta I, I thought that was interesting. She came out right away and said, no, now that we have the Mueller report, we've got to move towards impeachment. Um, you know, and other uh, mainstream leaders in the Democratic Party, including Nancy Pelosi and most of the other candidates, wanted to take a wait and see approach. They say, let's use our subpoena power. Let's investigate. Let's not go immediately towards impeachment. And the most of the sort of consensus uh, sort of uh, 
uh, I guess the kind of advisor class or the you know the the um, you know the sort of technocrats all say don't do it because it'll be just like the Clinton impeachment in the 90s and it'll just make you look bad by trying to do it and it'll redound to the president's benefit and a lot of the senior leadership in the Democratic Party remembers how badly they got you know sort of bonked by. Um, uh, how badly they were able to sort of turn the tables on the Republicans in the context of the Star Report and the impeachment for President Clinton. But of course, what they're missing is that President Clinton was being impeached for lying under oath about a sex act. Um, and Mr., albeit one that maybe by today's standard would be more serious than it was uh, at the time. And that's also a discussion for another time. But in the case of Mr. Trump, what we're talking about are um, you know, obstruction of justice having to do with interference by, or let's just say interference, I should say, uh, interactions with or responses to what is clearly interference by a foreign actor in an election and uh, having to do with crime and fraud committed in context of becoming elected president and uh, after having taken the oath of office. So it's, it shouldn't, they shouldn't be gun shy about this or thinking about it through that prism. And they should say politics be damned because really what you want is to be able to look at your grandchildren 30, 40, 50 years from now and say, he's a dangerous man. He had uh, he, he had a heart full of hate. He had no respect for the law and he trod on everybody's rights and uh, he had to be removed to save the republic. Uh, so you either did that or you waited until the election and hoped for the best. I, I'm not sure what the I, – honestly, I, I understand where for elected officials that's a difficult um, uh, decision to make. But from my view, I agree with Elizabeth Warren. I think you know, th- the history is never wrong and you can never be wrong by doing the right thing. And in this case, I think there's no question that the right thing is, is impeachment and then a Senate – uh, a, a Senate trial. That trial will be where the American public really gets all the information, really has all the witnesses comes out, and can and things have changed in the past. You know where there's been impeachment after impeachment before the trial. Nixon resigned. Uh, in the case of Andrew Johnson, um, it changed the public perception. Even though he he wasn't uh, impeached and he left office shortly thereafter anyway, but. Um, I think, you know, I think it's in the public's interest to know everything, and I think that's a way of making everything known. And I think there's certainly enough evidence there, and the way the Mueller report is, as I read and digest it over the days after, is that he's left a set of breadcrumbs that are there for Congress to engage uh, with impeachment and to set up uh, a trial based on the evidence he has in his report. So I don't think there's any, there's any point in, in hesitating to do it. I think the time is now, and I think not doing it and triangulating on it I don't know what the politics of it are going to be, but I don't think the ethics of it are particularly good. Uh, the last question I wanted to toss at you is the politics around dealing with Trump on the trade front, um, especially around steel and aluminum tariffs, which uh, are starting to take a part of our federal election as as, yeah. as the conservatives and the NDP and the liberals all try and have sort of this how we manage Trump tactic or how we represent our country in the trade front in light of these frustrations south of the border. But it's also that same issue is taking political shape inside the United States. I noted an article out today where the Democrats are drawing a red line on NAFTA 2.0, the USMCA, uh, mm-hmm. saying that these these tariffs on our, on our neighbors, Mexico and Canada and steel and aluminum, uh, are unacceptable and we will not approve a deal that contains these things. And And so we're seeing different angles of the same argument kind of play out politically uh, on both sides of the border. How, how do you see, how do you see that sort of whole trade negotiation, maneuvering management slash fight in the States? Well, we also saw recently, right? We saw that um, leak basically that the, from Bloomberg, right? About Mr. Trump's comments in connection with um, the negotiations with Canada. And I don't have the exact words in front of me, but to the, he's expected them to be off record and was, was annoyed when they came out in public, but but acknowledged that okay, they're true, and which he basically said, you know, we're not giving these guys anything, right? So I have a lot. I have compassion for the federal government on this. I got a tough file. Uh, this is a guy who's not particularly in good faith, and it's not particularly a priority for him. He can demagogue it. He can kick the can. He needs Congress to do uh, further uh, to do anything anyway. Um, you know, I, I think it's a very hard position for the Trudeau government. I think Christopher Freeland has been as good as anybody could be on this. Um, and I think that ultimately, you know, like other world leaders, probably what the Canadian government is doing is avoiding front to f- head, uh, front on uh, clashes with Mr. Trump because they really get nowhere and they just confuse things, try to build relationships with 
what are hoped to be cooler heads in the background and ultimately are hoping, as I think are many Americans, that the next government is one which is more amenable to sort of the normal course of diplomatic um, politics. But yes, the Trudeau government's time in office since 2015 has been unexpectedly eaten up. Remember when Mr. Trudeau came in, Mr. Obama was still president of the United States and it was assumed that Hillary Clinton would be the next president, has been eaten up with a diplomatic crisis with our largest trading power, our largest trading partner and closest ally. Um, and it's it's been enormously consuming, all-consuming in some ways for the government. And the fact they you know have averted, I suppose, catastrophe. I don't know if they deserve credit for that or not. But I think I could imagine it have being a lot worse. So I think that smart liberal strategists during the election will actually highlight the fact the government's been fairly competent on that file. Um, and yes, and part of the reason that, I, as I've said in the past, it's not something I've talked about in a while, and I'm sort of glad to get to talking about this and get to talking about things like the emoluments clause, which we haven't been talking about. But one of the things I was talking about um, at the very beginning uh, is that what's been wise about what the Trudeau government has done, again, led by Christopher Freeland, I think, is to reach out to governors in border states where there's a major share of the market, which is uh, trade with Canada, uh, to reach out to um, civil society, but also especially Democratic uh, lawmakers, and to build alliances. Is uh, there right? Because the fact is, is that Canada is not a huge uh, share of the in the broader sense of the American. You know, the China is more important. Europe's more important, right? Mexico's more important. But in a specific uh, states, in many specific and crucial states, including states, by the way, which play very prominent roles uh, in electing presidents in the allocation of electoral college votes, are trade are are states which have trading relationships with Canada. And so I think the Trudeau government and Christian Freeland have focused on making sure to work in concert with some of those groups for their mutual interests at times against the Trump administration, sort of irrationalism and, and chess beating on this file. So I think uh, in that res- regard, probably well played for the government. Uh, and I should note, by the way, on that final note on that, Jeff, I was talking to a conservative heavyweight on the NAFTA trade panel that uh, the prime yeah. minister established uh, recently and asked him, you know, point point blank is this deal in trouble uh and he mm-hmm. told me he told me it absolutely is yeah uh, so there is a sentiment on this side of the border that this nafta 2.0 is is going to possibly go down in flames we'll have to see how that plays well out. i think it's certainly possible and you know so i think whether canada's relationship you know the damage that's done to the trading relationship the damage that's done to the legal um, you know, edifice that's been built over, you know, the last few decades. I mean, there's going to be a lot of opinions on that. We don't know where we're going to be. But Mr. Trump is not an accomplished person at getting things done or really um, seeing his policies through, nor does he have congressional support for some of what he wants to do. And even on the things he has congressional support for, he can't get them done. So it's just, it's not, I'm not particularly worried that the status quo ultimately is going to blow up. That said, I'm no expert in uh, trade law, and I'm no expert in NAFTA, so I'm, I'm really just speaking to the kind of politics of it. Absolutely. Jeff, as always, a pleasure. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you, Shane. We'll talk again next week. Sounds good. Thanks, man. Appreciate this. Ciao. My okay. pleasure. Cheers. Bye. Bye. And that was Jeffrey Myers joining us on The Woodford Show, as he does every single Tuesday. My thanks to my guest today, and thank you for tuning in. We'll see you again right here on The Woodford Show, same time on Radio NL tomorrow. 1400 Clearwater, 107.1 Shuswa from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM, local news now.